This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. Our guests this week, Stephen Fretwell and Ross Godfrey from Mochiba. Stephen Fretwell is a singer-songwriter whose debut album Magpie came out in 2004 and went on to sell 100,000 copies. The song Run from that album is a theme tune to a BBC series Gavin and Stacey. He was based in Manchester around that time but moved to New York for the making of his second album Man on the Roof, released in 2007. The album didn't fare as well as his debut and he was sadly dropped by his label. After that he disappeared from music entirely. He claimed he didn't even own a guitar for a while. He focused on more of a domestic existence, raising his two sons. That all changed back in March 2021 when he released his first new single in about 14 years, Oval. He's released two further singles since then, The Stunning Embankment, and more recently, The Long Water. You'll hear clips from all three during my interview with Stephen. I was really interested to learn what it's like to walk away from professional creativity and then to find your way back. Thankfully, Stephen had a lot to say. Enjoy. How you doing, fella? Oh, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been an interesting year, but... Uh... It has been an interesting year, yeah. You've got some nice whiskies behind you there. Yeah. I've got the self-control not to um, sort of get through them really quickly so I the better they are the better they are the longer they last you savor them more don't you that's what i've noticed are you are you in london at the moment yeah 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 you. no i'm in south end oh right okay i thought embankment was stunning uh really really, really floored me yeah oh wow wow yeah it's funny because I've had those songs, I've been working on those songs for so long, and then I recorded them last year. So I, they don't really have any, anything, any impact on me at yeah. all. Like I can't really, I can't see what, what's what with them. So I'm, I'm chuffed you've said that. Do you think you've got better perspective on your songs closer to writing them then, when, when you get the initial emotional attachment to them? Because I think for some artists, you'll go back later and have a better idea of whether something was good or not but like do, yeah. do, do you think you've got a better sense closer to like the creation probably probably at the moment of at the moment of an idea coming then uh, then if that if that's if that excites me then i suppose that's that's i'm not someone who will work at something if i don't think it's going to work eventually i don't think so so it had so there'd have to be something good i think with embankment it was the uh i think it was it was the chorus bit that came that sweet i liked that sweet judith yeah sweet judith 
I, I like the idea of that, and I think that's what got me through. Yeah. No, I don't really. I don't really know what 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 whether I've got perspective on when when much later when when I've looked, when I when I put this record together and kind of like finished it. I listened to my first two albums for the first time in ten years, and I did think, "Oh right, that's quite a good song. Oh, that's quite." Uh, duh, 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 you know, so I had a very different perspective than when I was putting them together. Uh, yeah, it's hard. It's a hard one to answer that, really. I don't. I guess um, the thing I most want to ask is what it's like for your creativity to have been so immersed in something. And mm. to have been like successful at it, you know, I, I was quite surprised that Magpie shifted like a hundred thousand copies. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's like incredible. <laughs> and I saw you headline at Shepherd's Bush Empire with that album, right? Yeah. As well, what's it like to walk away and then have to start afresh again? Like, what have you learned about creativity from having been through that? Uh. That's a good question, actually. Uh, when I decided 100% that I was making this record, I, I, I that, the question's good because when, when I decided, you know, with every, every part of me, this is happening. And the reason I did that is because I told my manager, Ian, that I was doing it and I asked him if he could organise a publishing deal for me. Yeah. And, and because the financial commitment of that meant that there was no kind of turning back because I admire Ian greatly. And, and once I'd kind of made that gentleman's agreement with him, I knew it was happening. And when I went, when I sat down, I started going to the British Library to work because... I couldn't afford a rehearsal room and my flat, there were people that I lived in a shared flat with two other guys. Yeah. So there was nowhere to focus without that. And I, I realized when I was walking in there every day, I could feel, I could feel people's eyes on me because it's full of, it's full of people researching things and it's full of students studying. And I obviously didn't, quite fit in to that kind of uh, environment in for some reason just the way just just people's instincts must have looked at me and thought well this guy's not it's just not like a student he doesn't look like a guy that's doing a retirement project researching trains and I realized that what a big ask it was to of someone to to, to create something and and it, and it to stand alone and stand up from that, just from that feeling, because because I hadn't done it for so long, I didn't have the confidence of walking in there and working every day thinking, I'm a songwriter and this is what I do for my job. So I think, I think with creativity, I think when you stop, your brain changes, you, the muscles in your brain change, all sorts of things, they change your perspective of yourself uh, and confidence in yourself and what you do, the, the, the skills that you've learned 
and the, the processes that you've learned to do things, they're all gone. You've got to find those again. So it was very strange because I felt like a 35-year-old guy who had suddenly decided he was going to write some songs and had never written any songs before, yeah. rather than someone who who was just making their next album. The belief that I needed to do that was massive, and I could only I only really got there because of a handful of people who, when when I was a bit dissuaded by whether I'd be able to do it or not, or whether it would be good enough or whatever, just looked me in the eyes and just, you know, kind of gave me that confidence, like, no, this is what you do. You just need to get on with it. There's like four or five people in my life who just almost didn't need to, it's almost like they didn't even say that. They were just, just their behaviour was, no, this is what you do, this is what you're doing. But creatively, it was strange. And I suppose it was it was freeing in a lot of ways because I... There were no muscle memories to lean back on. There was no, oh, well, I always do that in a song or I always repeat that bit or I'll do what I did last time. It was from the ground up and that that was really, really tricky. I think that's why I worked on the lyrics so hard because while I was trying to, like, bring the songs together, I found that, I found that if I focused on finessing the words and changing the words and looking at every line individually, that that I could do that work over any doubt. So if the doubt if the doubt came in, then I would work on the words because I knew I could do that. Yeah. Uh, and then I waited until I wait. I, I just waited then until a kind of like rise in confidence came again, and then I would write some more music or think about it as a full song and then just kept doing that it's i kind of want to answer that question much more because I, I do think about that a lot i think about i think a lot about how important what people say to you is in life i mean if if someone has confidence in you the difference that, that can make uh with especially with creativity uh, when you're just on your own with nothing, you've got to make something. It's natural to doubt it. It's natural to it's natural to think this is crap. Anyone could do this. Why do I think I'm the person that can do this? So yeah, it's it's a big it's a big question that yeah. It is amazing, isn't it, that as humans, we can just create something out of nothing. Like, yeah. there wasn't an album. <laughs> and yeah. because you've sat down in the British Library for, for hours and you've learned to play an instrument, that now there's there's like yeah. a, there's a piece of art that exists yeah. Out, of, yeah. out of nothing. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. And also the other question is, I suppose it was going around my head because because it it's like my living. 
I suppose I was also thinking a lot about why should you why should you make a living out of this? What why why should you expect this to pay for your life or some of your life while while it comes out or whatever? Things like that were going through my head a lot. There's a lot of negativity about that in my head. And 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 someone did say to me what you've just said, you know, it's it's in, it's insane that that you can go and make something from nothing and that and that's your living as opposed to I don't know. I, I, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying there. It's it's a it's a real funny. It, it is a real funny thing. You just make something. But then my sons will make things like paintings. They paint a lot, and I'm sat there thinking, you know, you've just made something. So what? What's the difference? What's what's the worth of art or whatever? Yeah, I, I heard about. Uh, Barack Obama saying that the reason people, the real, the real point of art or creativity is is to help people, is to is to help other people through their life. That's that's the actual worth of making things, and that that kind of that steadied me a bit because I thought, well, yeah, I'm writing these songs, and if they if they if they do soothe someone, if they do bring something to someone's life that's positive, then there's a worth to them. I had to tell myself that a lot, yeah. Songwriting can be quite self-indulgent. It's like, I'm going to tell you the story of my life, you know, it's like... Yeah. Um, I wrestle with this quite a lot because, uh, yeah, often when you... And so many people that make creative things, they don't really get much of an audience. No, yeah. So, so then you can think, well, I've created this thing, but like, I know barely anyone's going to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there still an intrinsic value to it if if no one really hears it, you know? And then. Well, yeah. I mean, I used to live in Bright. I lived in Brighton for a long time, and uh, with my kids. And uh, before, when I first started doing music, I didn't really know any creative people. All my friends, who are still my friends now, uh, are, are not from creative worlds. It was. It was. It, they're much more either academic. Or they are people that 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 I was brought up around, and and when I when I started hanging around with or meeting people in creative worlds that that to, who who to them it was just normal to be creative because they came from creative backgrounds or artistic backgrounds or whatever they would more often than not be successful in what they do. Uh, <clears throat> and make a living out of it because I would I'd met them once I got signed when I was young or whatever. And when I moved to Brighton and I not and I wasn't doing music anymore, that the the the, the 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 people there more mostly are people that, that create things because that's what they do. That not necessarily to make money. It's it's because they have to do that because that's the type of person they are. And I've never really been I, I didn't think I was like that, really. Uh, but but that's when I started asking myself the question. Yeah, I was thinking, well, why do you think that that you sh- that your thing that you're going to do should be for a job or whatever for a career? And all these people here are just they just create for themselves or because that, that, for their mental health or whatever because that's what they have to do. I don't I don't know I don't know when it when it becomes a job. Or when it, when there's the, the pressures of other people being involved who 
whose job it is to work with you, then I suppose things definitely change because you've got the responsibility of, well, if this album doesn't work, these people have invested some money, these people have worked really hard, that person's just spent hours and hours sorting out this and that. I suppose that's something that changes in that world, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, would you just, do you, when you write a song, do you, if you get a buzz out of it, I suppose you want to share it, don't you? Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> it's a bonkers, it's a bonkers question, isn't it? So was, was making your second album harder because you had expectations? Or other people, other people had expectations, you know, throwing up a like a hundred thousand selling. Yeah, yeah. Well, I met. Well, yeah. There was a lot of expectation, and and I think I think I kind of fought against that by by trying to make a much more a much. I wanted to make one of those kind of like American live studio records where, where it's slick sounding, but you can, but you know the band are playing it off the bat, like kind of like uh, what's a good example of that? Maybe something like Gold by Ryan Adams. You can hear that, you can hear on that record that, that the band are high end session players who just have to. Who can almost see where the where the chord's going to go next without on the first run through? The studio's amazing, but but you can still hear that that little te- tense f- thing where the, where when the band have only just heard the song, so there's still some feel about it. Yeah. I wanted to make a record like that rather than go more kind of into a, a, an acoustic like Damien Rice type O type world which is probably where I think the record company wanted me to go because that that seemed to be what the people that were into me liked so I think when I made that record it was a bit I, I don't know I, I, I just had it in my head that's the type of record I want to make and I don't know I do that a lot and 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 with, with stuff like a lot, I'll go off on a tangent with with a different style, and it always feels a little bit like like I'm doing it to free myself from where I've gone before. But then it doesn't translate well. It doesn't sound like what I do. So uh, it's it's really the, that the question was about the pressure, wasn't it? That. I suppose I just thought at that time, whatever I put out, I'll sell 100,000 copies again, because the last one did. (laughs) (laughs) It'll probably sell more, I probably would thought. (laughs) And I was living in New York, uh, not living, kind of. I'd got a three-year visa. I went over there. And I suppose I just thought, oh, I'll just do this. I'll just... I'll just live with all these crazy weird people in like Chelsea and 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 uh I live next door to to one of the Warhol uh superstars, uh Rene Ricard. And he used to come round in the evenings and like we'd hang out and I just thought, yeah, this is life now. I'll just it was almost like I made that album 
on the side of life. It was like life was so unusual because I was so young and had a bit of money for the first time. So, the, yeah, I kind of made that record, not in my sleep, but I didn't really give it much thought. I mean, it's such a big sounding record to say how little thought I gave it. But compared to this record, which, you know, the amount of hours I moved those words around, the amount of, the amount of thought that went into it, it working with some cohesion all the way through as one piece, it's insane to think how little I put into that Man on the Roof record compared to this. But yeah, I, th I didn't really feel the pressure. I don't know. I think maybe I just deal with pressure by by doing something stupid. Right? <laughs> <laughs> doing stupidly. It's interesting you evoking Damien Rice there because it just made me think about the kind of scene that was this side of the Atlantic in that time period. And you had... Um, so I, th I think what I was listening to and going to see, and there's sort of Ed Harkle, Tom McRae, Damien Rice, Gemma Hayes, mm -hmm. you. There was quite an exciting kind of scene, this side of the mm -hmm. Atlantic, but kind of none of those artists were qu quite were able to build on that, you know, like <laughs> none of them became superstars after those no. first couple of albums. I know, yeah. And I think that's one of the that's one of the tricky things with uh, going into the major record label world because if if that's the thing of the moment, then I suppose you tend to get that there's interest by big labels, and I think that can be quite tricky because then if you don't become a big act, you can't stay on a big label because yeah. they just don't they. they, they they don't know what to do with you, uh, which is which is just the nature of the music industry. But I, I think, yeah, that 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 the people that seem to have built on things and stayed the same are the people that maybe didn't have those big deals. Because once you once once you lose one of those big deals, it's like anyone in life when they lose their job. It's it's if it, it, it would affect the toughest of people. I think you know just that feeling that you you you. You, you lost you lost something that you had because when I got dropped after after this that second album, my A and R guy wrote me a letter saying, you know, I, I I can't believe I've got to do this, but I've got to do it because the accountant has has looked over the books and your sales just don't don't match uh, everyone else's, and it's the hardest thing I, I, I've I've ever had to do. Da, 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 da. And you know, it was like this glowing letter where he he actually said, he actually said in it because I remember reading it very drunk in the middle of the night, and it was and I remember being really like, I only read a little bit of it and then deleted it. I think it was one of those type. It's like, oh, I've got the gist of this now. And I remember he said something like, "I want you to know, Stephen, you have the potential to be the Leonard Cohen of your generation." And I remember thinking, this is this is a really weird, uh, a really weird uh, sacking letter. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like saying, uh, if you ever need a you, reference, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're good at this, you're good at this, but it's like you're good in a different way to what we need. And I realised straight away, well, not straight away, I realised after a few, <clears throat> a few years later that 
Yeah, a lot of the music industry, or a lot of anything, and a lot of life goes back to money, doesn't it? And with 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 the record industry, if if you're going to give someone X amount of money, then it's an investment that you, that needs to be paid back. It's like anything. So yeah, it's 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 a funny one that. And I think those acts you mentioned then, I think they. Uh, I think that, yeah, they never really, you, you never really heard too much, did you, after a while? Uh, yeah, that's why I was surprised when that, that there was anyone interested in me doing anything when, when I went back to it, because I kind of just thought, well, you know, it'll, it'll just be some guy from a few years ago that didn't really make it. So I was, I was encouraged that people were interested. The hardest thing in the world, I think, is is walking out to a big crowd with an acoustic guitar, for me anyway, is knowing that all these people want to, they want to have a really good time. They've probably not seen their mates in two months, if it's a London show or something, and they, they want to talk, they want to have a good time, they're still listening, yeah. but it's very, very hard to get over that. If you start playing in small places and, and you can hear a pin drop and the people that are going there are so dedicated to that type of music, that intense acoustic thing, then, yeah, to make that transition is really difficult. Like, I remember doing it with supporting. Like, I started, I used to play those little shows, like we talked about then, where you could hear a pin drop. I'd do that in Manchester, maybe the odd little one in London. And then... SJM started to get me to support really big acts because I was only 50 quid. I was always on time. And my manager knew, knew someone at SJM who, and they knew they could rely on the manager to make sure I was always there. So whenever there was something happened, like they'd say, oh, we'll just get Fretwell because he's only 50 quid and he'll, and he'll definitely be there on time. And they don't really, it's just someone to come on and play. And I remember supporting John Squire when he came back after the, you know, like it was a big deal that he- That solo album you put out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. solo album. And I remember walking on stage with an acoustic guitar and there was just like pint glass, well, plastic pint glasses being thrown at the stage. Everyone was just going absolutely mental, like- like chanting for the ro roses, but all these roses banners, like, and having to play acoustic music. And then there was like, and then I did, I don't know, I did loads and loads of those. And I worked out a way, I had to work out a way to lose that connection because when you're doing the little gigs, the audience are like part of the show, their silence and their focus. You're playing with them. Everyone's yeah. kind of like hopped together in this mad thing. Whereas when when it changes to the other thing, you are comp you are totally alone. You may as well just be a television screen. So I kind of learn, I, I learn very quickly that if if it's like that, you just play. You just play as if you as if you 
as if one person might be listening or three people by the sound desk might be listening. Play the best you can and just hope for the best. But but I imagine, yeah, if I didn't if I didn't have that experience early on and it had built up without that, then I can imagine I would have found it very, very difficult when the, when the rooms got bigger and people wanted to talk. I also used to feel quite insulted when acts would expect the cotton like the, the, the crowds to be silent. I always used to think that you have to earn that. You can't tell an audience to be quiet. You have to earn that like by something that you do, some kind of stagecraft or some kind of beauty in the performance or whatever. And then I started to get into the idea that you've got to try and the bigger the audience, you can silence. I like have little games with myself. Like I remember supporting Elbow. Elbow used to be a good crowd because I remember supporting them at Brixton Academy on my own with an acoustic guitar. I mean, what's that? It's like nearly 5,000 there, isn't it? Is it yeah. 4,200, 4,800 or something? I think it's, I think it's four eight. Could be wrong, but I think it's about 4,800. Four, eight. Eight. Yeah. It was completely packed and I walked on and I didn't have a guitar strap. So I did the kind of, I, I stole the Johnny Bramwell and Clute thing with the beer crate idea so that I could hold my guitar up. But as I did it, my left leg started shaking from the, from the pressure of it. I felt it going like this. And I was looking out at the crowd and I was thinking, right, come on, you've got to do this. Just see, see if you can make them go quiet. And after, after the second song, it kind of got to that point. And it was a really, really spooky feeling having that many people just, just almost silent. And then, of course, then of course it built up and it was loud again. I think it was probably Emily. That song Emily used to used to, when the chorus started, the first time a crowd heard that, quite often, they would, there would be a real dip and everyone would be like, "Oh, this is interesting," or whatever. Yeah. And then usually that song would finish, then I'd do something else, and then <laughs> everyone would start talking again. But yeah, it's a funny one that the big crowd and the acoustic guitar. When you go to those big rooms, you want you want to hear you want to hear something that's like Friday night music. You want you know when everyone's going. Yes! You don't want like introspective folk, do you? I, me- I remember when you played. Um... Shepherd's Bush, you had Morning Runner support, which I thought was like an odd choice to have this kind of like noisy kind of indie band supporting yeah. Stephen Fretwell. That was like a kind of unexpected. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how that came about. I think I think that that was one of those things where they were involved with they were involved with my publisher. I think. Ah, oh, okay. They kind of after that first album. Yeah, they must they must have got dropped, I guess. But that's uh, the thing. I mean, that hit of getting dropped by a major. That's what I mean. Is is not? It's hard to recover from that. I think because <laughs> all the people around you as well, like your parents, your friends, your just people that care about you. That it affects them as much as it affects you because it's like, oh, that didn't work out. So, so I can imagine, yeah, it, it, in a lot of ways, it'd be, it's better to be. I think if my kids ever went into music, I would say to them, you know, don't, don't get 
don't get some massive thing on your shoulders straight away. I spoke to Liam Frost the other day. Do you remember him? Who's Liam that? Frost. Oh man, I listened to um, <laughs> listened to the Mourners of St Paul's just the other night. Really? Yeah. yeah. I spoke to him the other day, and he was talking about he was talking about uh, doing some more music, and I could hear it in his voice that it want because he had a I think he had a major deal, and yeah, it's like. There's, there's just this kind of feeling that once that goes, you 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 aren't anything anymore, or you're not what you were, or something like that. Whereas it's just not the case, is it? I think things have changed massively, though, because I, I, I've not looked at, I've not thought about the music industry apart from, I've, I mean, my management look after Arctic Monkeys, so I always have kept my eye on what they're doing because I'm kind of involved in that that world professionally and uh, I'm very fond of their music and they're doing all right just so you know yeah they're doing okay yeah <laughs> uh, but apart from that as a kind of fan perspective I suppose I've not looked at I didn't, I didn't know anything about I didn't know anything about face I don't know what is it not face I was gonna say FaceTime <laughs> like Instagram or Twitter or anything like that so when I put these singles out this time I uh, I realised how different everything is. It's like you don't. It's not all about getting signed, and then a kind of uh, cartel of people decide who's going to be who's going to be heard and who isn't. It's quite shocking that that anyone can do it. Anyone can just put anything out these days, can't they? And it can find an audience. Yep. But I suppose you had to you had to be able to make a CD still when I started. You had to you had to find you could, a physical way of putting it on something and then finding someone to distribute it or whatever. Yeah, it's strange. So it's good. It's good and bad because on the one hand, like you say, anyone can do it, and yeah. and in a way, you can. I mean, your next album, you could self-release it, you know, mm. and you could earn a lot more money per record, couldn't you? You know, if you sold yeah. if you sold direct through your website for the next record, um, yeah. you know you could. Aside from production costs and advertising costs, you're keeping all the money per record. Yeah, yeah, which is great yeah. if if you've got an established audience. But yeah, if you're start yeah. if you're starting from nothing, mm. everyone else can do what you can do. Yeah, I'm mean, assuming they've yeah. they can, they've made an album, they've got recording equipment or whatever. But like every yeah. every you know garage band that's got some mm. recording equipment. Mm. can like put out an album so how do yeah. people discover it because there is an almost an infinite amount of music out there yeah 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 there's so much information yeah and we have no monoculture anymore either there are so many thousands of internet radio stations and there, yeah. there, there's no monoculture anymore so it's kind of people are forced to kind of discover what they like yeah if they can be bothered it's just a totally different perspective from having a major label, a few major radio stations that kind yeah. of control what people discover. It's just yeah. it's just infinite now, which is both good and terrifying. Mm-hmm. We were talking before about creativity or how that is after an amount of time away or whatever. Not, I'm not doing in your question. I'm doing my reply, actually. But like... Uh, I I did think a lot. You know, there's so much information in the world. There's so much around. Why? Wh- why? Why should I add to that? What? What? For yes. what reason? 
who wants to know who wants another thing there's yeah. so much yeah and, and, and I think yeah like you say it's a bit like everything at once isn't it uh, which is a good thing yeah, but like, but a bad thing in for some in some way aspects I suppose but it can only be a good thing that people can do stuff and, and put it out there thank you for coming on the show no it's been a pleasure I've really yeah. appreciated it yeah it's been great yeah if you're enjoying the show please subscribe Check out the back catalogue of episodes and leave a nice review if you can. Also, I have a question. So some of you may know I've had a rocky year. My OCD got very bad and last December I had some kind of breakdown. I had to stop work for a while. I've been retraining and started some work from home, but the money is frankly not good. As you may have noticed, since the start of 2021 I've managed to put out an episode of Sending Signals every two weeks. I'm proud of the show. From my living room in Essex, I've managed to book and interview some ridiculously awesome guests, people who I could only have dreamt of speaking to when I was a kid. The podcast does not make me any money. True, I sometimes get sent some nice things or get on the guest list at a show, but it's essentially been a labour of love. In fact, it costs me to put the show out. There's hosting fees, and as you can imagine, the time it takes to record, edit and promote each episode is not insignificant. Here's the thing, I know I'm quite good at this, and I'd like to keep doing it. I obviously have to consider if this is still the best use of my time. If I could generate some income for the show, it would really help justify its existence. So I'm throwing it out there. Does the show mean something to you? Would you be willing to contribute to the show if I set up a Patreon page? If so, what sort of figure would you have in mind? Are there any incentives I could offer? I can't think why you'd want a Zoom call with me or anything, but is there something I haven't thought of? To be clear, I've already got various guests recorded for upcoming shows and I'm in negotiations for others. I'm not going anywhere just yet, but trying to fit some pieces together for the future. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast and on Twitter at Signals Podcast. Let me know your thoughts. Mochiba formed in the mid-90s, originally consisting of brothers Ross and Paul Godfrey and singer Sky Edwards. They were part of the trip-hop movement of the 1990s. They filter soul, psychedelic rock, a dash of reggae sometimes, through this blissful down-tempo filter. Their second album, 1998's Big Calm, was certified platinum in the UK, and you might recognise the single part of a process from that album. It was an album I played a lot when I was a teenager. The band have had some ups and downs over the years. Sky left the band in 2003, but rejoined in 2009. Paul Godfrey left the band in 2014, which created a bit of a fallout, with Sky and Ross making an album together, but not using the Morchiba name. Sky and Ross have a new album out this year, this time under the Morchiba banner. It's called Blackest Blue, and it's a really nice album. You'll hear some clips from it as we go through. I caught up with Ross, who took me through the process. Enjoy. Um, hold on, I'll turn on my camera as well, I'll just put a shirt on. It's quite <laughs> Where are you? Um, I'm, in, I'm in South End on Sea. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm in um, Peckham Rye in South London. I've just come back from a run, so I'm a bit sweaty. It's really hot here. How long have you lived in South London? Um, about eight years. Before that, I lived in Hollywood, actually, in, in California. Show off. Yeah, I swapped um, the Hollywood Hills for Forest Hill, and it's I must say it's much more glamorous here than it is there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> How are you? 
Very good, yes. Um, we are very happy that the record has been released and we've uh, got through that process. It was it was quite trying at times. Was it? It was easy making the record. It was just releasing it that was hard. It's a really nice record, man. It's come out really well. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, we, we tried our best. It's um, It's definitely you know, a, a kind of, I would say like a classic more cheaper album. We didn't really worry about uh, what other people would think or whether it would get on radio or anything. We just wrote the songs we wanted to write and, and, um, and have the kind of atmosphere and the, the lounge psychedelia that we're, we're known for. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that, uh, I guess the industry's changed so much, but it feels like if sounds of blue had been the follow up to part of a process, it would be getting a lot more attention. But I mean, at the time, things were very, you know, that was a very zeitgeist thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Like the, the trip hop movement and all of that. Uh, whereas now everything is kind of all happening at once and it's quite difficult. I think the world is suffering from ADD. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. I, I think about this a lot, this idea that genre doesn't really exist anymore. And I I like that because, you know, my taste is... I. I I like a lot of uncool stuff. You know, I was a kid in school that was into Genesis and Marillion and the Levelers and, you know, anything that was kind of uncool, I was kind of into it. And so um, if I want to like Genesis and Joy Division, I have no issue with that. But in the 70s, yeah. that wouldn't be allowed or something. And yeah, um, there's, there's no division between... Yeah, it's sort of... You take some of the biggest artists on the planet like I don't know Ed, Ed Sheeran and is he is he a rapper is he a songwriter is he a pop artist is he and he's kind of all of those things and yeah. I kind of like the fact that people have to like what they like now rather than being fed into sort of channels do you think about genre much do you like the notion of genre or would you rather we didn't talk about music in terms of genre anymore I think that music is very abstract and, and really it's just an expression of emotion and it doesn't really matter what kind of style that goes in. And unfortunately, genres tends to put things in pigeonholes that sometimes they don't really deserve. Um, certainly if they're an artist that does uh, a multiple, you know, different kind of music. But I, I kind of, I kind of miss the tribal nature of music because it used to be and almost very local you know if you were yeah. from Birmingham you liked metal you know if you were from Coventry you liked Scar it was it was like a it was like a localized thing because people didn't have the internet and they couldn't find out everything about other music all the time they just got into what was local to them and um because of globalization world music isn't really world music anymore it's just kind of everybody's got everything all the time and and, and that's a little bit confusing for us we, we try lots of different kind of genres of music we love folk and blues and country and you know electronica and psychedelia 
and dub reggae um, and we just put it all in the melting pot and and stir it up we just we just love experimenting and the thing that makes more chiba identifiable is sky's voice and probably my bumbling guitar parts in the background but I, I i kind of agree with you that it doesn't really matter what's cool anymore when i was a kid uh i wanted to learn to play the guitar and all the guitarists that were big at the time were like eddie van halen and steve Vai, and i couldn't stand their sound i preferred old fuzz pedals you know like Jimi hendrix and cream and yeah. you know uh, jefferson airplane and stuff like that and that wasn't cool at the time but then it came back in and then it went out again it's like uh, my favorite artist to quote from that is Neil Young, because, you know, one minute he's like an old fogey, and then the next minute he's the godfather of grunge, and then he's out of fashion, and then he's back in fashion. It's just, if you just like good music, you, you kind of can just stick to that. It doesn't really matter what the media says or what your mates think. Yeah, and Mochiba were like, I guess, a bit of a, a gateway in that my taste was was very white before that, and then there was there was a of course there was a girl I liked and she she liked Mass Attack and more, more Chiba and, and that was kind of, and I remember seeing um so like uh, Summer of 99 seeing Mass Attack live and it just being this bridge to like it was very there was lots of guitar but you know I'm essentially watching a black guy rap sort of which is which which was just not my before that it was not my thing at all you know and yeah. um, with more Chiba as well it, it was kind of a gateway there was enough kind of guitar and sort of sounds that I was comfortable with as a teenager but it, it kind of pushed me into some some new territory and um yeah Big Calm's kind of a special album for me because I remember being I guess I was like about 16 and I got a job in this um shop that sold it sold like seconds of like kitchenware like glasses and plates that were like slight seconds <laughs> and um because i was only six i was getting like two pound 44 an hour and i was at college and so i was only doing a couple of afternoons a week so i was like earning like you know 80 odd pounds a month or something and i remember my first paycheck from that job going into virgin and getting the flaming lips soft bulletin and big calm by you guys on like a two for 22 offer <laughs> and so yeah. that's, that's a real like kind of key um memory for me i don't know yeah, when i think big calm was a was a um a pivotal moment in certainly in my life because uh before that we we were you know we had our influences it was like you know hip-hop and and sort of acid rock and and soul jazz kind of stuff and we made our first album and we were kind of aware that it was fitting into a trip-hop kind of category and we were very aware that that's what record companies were signing at the time. So we didn't mind kind of coming in under that umbrella. But as soon as we got our foot in the door, we wanted to expand and try out different things. Um, and Big Calm was really our, um, you know, our, our kind of like celebration of all the different kinds of music that we liked. And, and we wanted to include influences like, you know, Cat Stevens and King Tubby and Jimi Hendrix and and all of that. And it, it was much more, we felt much more at home with it. And and then after that, we, we felt a little bit too penned in by the trip hop label. I mean, looking back on it now, I think it's kind of cute and I, I, I don't mind it. And it's better to be part of the vanguard of a smaller genre rather than a footnote in a bigger one. But it's kind of, you know, at the time, I think Big Calm transcended quite a lot of boundaries and a lot yeah. of people 
listen to it that you know clubbers would listen to it when they went home or you know sort of brit pop kids would listen to it when they were chilling out with their girlfriends as opposed to hanging out with their mates it was it was good like that it, it crossed a lot of bridges and it, and it linked a lot of people together and that's why i think it became so popular yeah i hear this weird dichotomy though between what you're saying and that you miss the tribalism of music and yet in yeah. Mochiba, you were trying to push down like all, all these genre lines so i find that's a weird contradiction i think it used to really confuse me because I would think when I was younger, you know, the mods and the rockers would have fights and I would be like, why Why do they hate each other so much? They both like the who, you know, <laughs> it's really bizarre. And, um, and I found it a bit scary, you know, like, you know, say, you know, there was gangs of skinheads going around beating up people that were breakdancing or whatever. It was kind of, it was very um, adversarial music, at, you know, when, when we were growing up. And I found that to be intriguing because you know you can like all different kinds of music one minute i'd be listening to you know easy listening the next minute i'd be listening to apex twin or dinosaur junior or something like yeah. that you know for me music didn't have any boundaries but because of the um tribalism of it it created its own sort of mythology right and once you take that mythology away you get ed sheeran where it is just homogenous and it's just a bit of everything and which means nothing in the end it's kind of like you know you've just you've, you've taken all of the influences and made them really bland and with more cheaper we did a similar kind of experiment but we tried to make it really good we were like <laughs> new, new genres of music don't just come out of nowhere they come out of blending old genres of music together for instance um Blues and jazz came from blending West African music with like Celtic music, you know, in, in America. Once um, the, the the people that had been forcibly taken to America mixed with the people from Europe, and that created what you know is now popular music. So th the way that these things kind of uh, evolve is through culture clashes, yeah. you know. And we wanted Morchiva to be a culture clash, but we wanted to cherry pick all the really good things and not necessarily try and make it commercial. We wanted it to be um, emotional and 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 sort of like take you on a journey and make it exotic. And at the time, people would still listen to albums all the way through, and we wanted our albums to sound like a you know like a compilation tape you'd made for your mate with all your favourite songs on, but they were all our songs. Yeah, um, and then you made a disco album. Yeah, Fragments of Freedom wasn't uh, our finest moment. Oh but man, we were I, kind I of hate rebelling I, against. Yeah, so I got we that were, album. I was excited about it, and I hated it. <laughs> yeah, we we were rebelling against everyone trying to make us be miserable all the time. It was like we can be happy if we, if we want to be, and I think there's a couple of really good songs on it. Obviously, um, Rome wasn't built on a day was massive, and um, World Looking In is a really nice song. Um, is that the opening song? But then the opening, opening yeah, I like that. The opening track. Yeah, is that good, one was yeah. all right. Yeah. Anyway, the, but we kind of, we'd also sort of signed to a major label at that point and it, we'd kind of lost the plot a bit as far as where we wanted to go because we'd kind of expressed what we wanted to express and then it it it'd become quite commercialised and because we'd become successful on our own terms, I think the record companies misinterpreted that and tried to push us further into a commercial, um, you know, avenue and we 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 kind of went along with it in a sense but we, we weren't very comfortable um by the time we got to Chirango we were kind of back on track in a lot of senses I, I I found Chirango a nicer album to be involved with we we were much more influenced by our travels around the world uh, we were listening to a lot of 
um, Tropicalia. We'd been to Brazil and we bought tons of records in Brazil. We were really into sort of like, um, you know, uh, West African music and and uh, psychedelia from all around the world, basically. And anyone that that had a fuzz guitar and, and took psychedelic drugs at some point around the world, we were interested in their music. And I found Charango was was quite a good record but then things kind of took a a turn for the worse in the sense that we'd all been on a tour bus stuck together for uh you know the best part of 10 years really and we'd all gone a bit mad I'd I'd started the band with my brother when we were I was 18 so I hadn't done anything else I hadn't really become an adult I'd never even learned to drive I'd only just got my own place to live it was kind of you know, we all needed a bit of a break, really. Uh, and, and that's kind of what happened after Chirango. There was a point a few years ago when you said there there were going to be no more, more Chiba albums. And I, I presume that was because things like with Paul were disintegrated so badly and there was sort of almost sort of legal complications over the name or whatever. Like, what what changed? Um, well, we came to an agreement in the end of, of, of us being able to carry on as more cheaper. Paul was um, happy to, to, you know, license his share of the name to us. And and then, you know, we'd made this guy on Ross record, which was it's good fun. It was it was for me, it was kind of like a more cheaper record, but it was a bit more organic. And uh, we'd been touring as Scar and Ross and, and, and that was good. But we were struggling to. Um, having this, the, the kind of recognition that we had with the name Morchiba. And so I think we were keen after a few years to to play again as Morchiba. And once we'd started made it, making the album, which became Blaze Away, we felt quite um, confident with it and quite um, at home. Yeah. And I'm sure that there were, you know, a, a percentage of the fans that, that missed the hip hop element and the, the production's scratching that Paul brought to the to the band um which is understandable but Paul hadn't really toured with us for a very long time he wasn't very keen on touring and so since about um the year 2000 or so we'd we'd toured and played with just Sky and I anyway so it wasn't too much of a leap to carry on as a duo yeah are are things because it's I guess like it it's just sad because it's your brother like are, are things are things better like on a personal level between you now? I think they're getting better, yeah. That's that's good, yeah, that's great. Can you tell me about the creative process of making Blackest Blue then? Where, where, where do you start? What's the process you went through to get it done? Okay, well, um, we were just about to start a European tour and we were on a tour bus full of uh, road crew and equipment and we did one show and then the world shut down and we had to come home. And at that point, I only had a couple of riffs uh, that we'd been jamming in soundcheck. You know, we're always trying to come up with new ideas all the time. Um, when we're on the road, they don't come as fast. So when we got home, it was like, right, let's start making a record then because we're not going to be doing anything else for a while. And I'm very lucky that, 
you know, um, I managed to have a lockdown with my family in our nice house with a recording studio and a garden. So we just kind of rolled through it and Sky's got a little recording studio as well. So we just sent stuff back and forth. Yeah. Most of the time we start a record or we start a song with a, a guitar riff or a piano, something really basic, you know, and, and Sky comes up with a melody and then we start thinking about lyrics and, and maybe production and beats and what, what it should sound like. But sometimes it happens the other way around. Like on this album, there was three or four songs uh, a good example is The Edge of the World, the closing track, and also uh, Cut My Heart Out, the opening track. They actually started with a beat. There's a guy called Henry Law, who is from a band called Yamino, which is an electronic band from London. And he'd done a remix for us. He was a friend of my wife's. Um, my wife is Amanda Zamalo, a French singer, and she'd worked with this band Yamino. And um, he'd done a remix for us for a track on the blaze away album um called never undo and we absolutely loved the remix we thought it was better than our album version <laughs> so my idea was just to get him to produce the record for me so i didn't have to do it um and it didn't quite happen like that but he gave me loads of beats that he thought that fitted more chiva and, and would we could write to and some of them had little snippets of bass lines on or little bits of music so what we did was just we just imported all of his beats and started jamming over those and and in a way that made this album sound a bit more modern and electronic than previous albums that we've made recently because it it um started in a more kind of process production way um and and much less so a traditional way because it it felt like we were making um music sort of uh, for now as opposed to living in a, in a in a kind of timeless fantasy which is what i normally do i normally exist in this sort of world that's kind of half 1990s half mid 60s psychedelia and half late 40s ragtime blues <laughs> so are you recording on to have you got like a pro tools rig is that what you're recording on to yeah, I have um, a very old-fashioned analog recording studio um, as far as all of the instruments in it are old. Yeah. You know, most of it's made before about 1975. We've got um, like a Hammond organ over there. And, um, Is that a Rhodes you know, behind you? Yeah, that's the Rhodes and uh, we've got Wurlitzer and, and just loads of old like um, synthesizers, things like that. I've got tons of old vintage guitars and amps and fuzz pedals and stuff. Um, and you know, rack gear, so I can I can mic everything up, and it all sound nice through valve compressors and that. And then it just goes into Pro Tools, and we edit in Pro Tools. And once we've got it in shape, I will give it to a mix engineer who will put it out through a really nice analog board and, and mix it like that. But um, I mean, we would record onto tape if it wasn't so much hassle. And um, I would say that the digital revolution in recording music has made it a lot easier for people like me to make our own records to a, to a much better standard than we could before of home recording. And it's a lot easier to share and collaborate on stuff, you know, um, half because of the pandemic, you know, we couldn't actually go out into studios and do stuff, but half because we're really lazy and we just want to stay at home and do stuff. When Sky records her vocals, she'll, you know, have dinner, put her kids to bed, have a glass of whiskey, and then start singing at about 11 o'clock in the evening. And yeah. that's why you get that relaxed sound. If she was in the studio at 11 a.m. with uh, a load of blokes staring through a window at her and the red light flashing. A thousand pounds an hour, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a really nice way to do it. And I, I do feel like that music technology has improved the ability of people to make records in, in a good way at home. But simultaneously to that, I also think that it's kind of ruined big production records because people aren't really, you know, going into Abbey Road and spending half a million pounds trying to make an album anymore. You're not going to get Graceland or anything like that anymore. It's not, it just doesn't happen. And there isn't the money in selling music um, because most bands don't sell that many copies or Spotify don't pay good enough royalties. And it's also... People want to just sort of do it themselves and, and get it done quickly. Um, the only time that you actually go into a big studio these days is to record strings or something like that. Yeah. more cheaper still your day job what do you mean is it still your primary income uh yes it is um playing concerts was up until um the pandemic we we've earned probably two-thirds or so of our income from doing concerts i do feel like it's shifting back towards recorded music a bit but as i said previously streaming companies don't really pay enough royalties to be able to make that work mm. um and so you know and everyone's all going for the same syncs and everything so there's a lot of competition in recorded music um even though it's been devalued in in the, the eyes of the world you know people don't really want to pay for for albums anymore it's still it is still worth something and i i feel like that there will be a change you know paradigm shift um in the way that we consume music going forward because you can't like i said you can't have great records without a budget to make them they don't just come out of nowhere and and unless you've got really rich parents you know like posh bands like mumford and sons or someone you can't really afford to do it and, and and young bands can't really afford to do it i think that's why there is so much sort of diy electronica and, and sort of grungy guitar music is because that's really easy and it's, it's a punk diy ethos to it but um it's i kind of miss the recording industry when there was big budgets and there was big you know people got paid to do stuff and so they took it seriously yeah, but there's also big debt that <laughs> comes with that as well. Yeah, that, that's true. But um, I mean, the way that I um, explain it to people is when we were kids, we went into record companies and said, can we, you know, can you give us a hundred grand because we want to get stoned and make a record with our mates? You can't go into a bank and say that now. And, and the record companies, as much as they ripped everyone off, they were the only people that were willing to front bands that had ideas. Yeah. Um, how does how does the vinyl sound? Have you do you give much attention to like the vinyl process when you release an album? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, it it sounds good. It sounds like um, uh, you know, a record on vinyl. I think because everything's actually mastered digitally these days, there isn't the you know pure analog um, elitism that they kind of used to be, and and in that sense that. You know the the vinyl's mastered from um 32 bit audio so that's that is pretty good quality as opposed to a cd which is 16 bit obviously yeah. but 
at the same time, CDs sound really bright, and and you know, if if you put it on in a car stereo, you probably prefer the sound of the CD because it cuts through more. Um, but I'm not too much of a sort of audiophile in that sense. I spend 16 hours a day in a recording studio listening to music through very expensive speakers. So when I'm not doing that, the last thing I actually really want to do is sit and listen to a stereo um, anywhere else. I, I'd prefer to listen to stuff through a you know a little transistor radio speaker or something like that. It's not something that I take too seriously because people listen to music on their phones or their laptops. And so I, I'm not that worried. What do you still want to achieve creatively? Have you got an idea of what you want to do next? Um, normally, you kind of react to whatever you did last time. And if we've done something quite electronic, it's more likely to go quite intimate next time. So I should imagine the next album might be a bit more acoustic or a little bit more kind of... Um, you know broken down in a way it won't it won't be quite as glitchy yeah um so you're playing you're playing brixton in december aren't you that's right yeah on the 9th of december um if if we manage to actually you know open up successfully uh we've got quite a few gigs this summer but i, I don't know how many of them are actually going to happen um we've kind of got used to postponing stuff now and also used to the kind of I don't know it's like you lose hope because if you if you keep building yourself up and hoping things are going to happen then you just become disappointed so we've just got to this weird world of being in limbo all the time and you kind of got used to that um I think our first gig is supposed to be in Dulwich on the 25th of June but that's cutting it pretty fine to the um to the unlockdown so yeah um we have some gigs in uh Europe and then we've got quite a big tour of Russia um, and then we'll come back and tour the UK and um, do Brixton just before Christmas, which will be amazing because we haven't played there in nearly 15 years or something. And, and I love Brixton Academy. I mean, aside from it being the closest big venue to me, I just remember being a kid and going to see, you know, bands like My Bloody Valentine and Sonic Youth there. And yeah. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? I feel like the album Blackest Blue is um, thematically, the more I've done interviews and the more I've read um, the, the interviews that Sky's done about it, that we've, the, it has actually got a theme. We didn't really realise at the time when we were making it, but the theme is kind of about going through really dark times and coming out the other side and actually, you know, being quite heavily affected by it, by but surviving in, in, a, in a way and... Uh, and living and learning to to have a better you know understanding of the world and and be a better person you know there's there's a lot of sort of, we're embracing quite a lot of uncomfortable issues but at the same time there's hope um the song the moon uh, which is actually a cover of a, a, a singer songwriter called arena zilic from croatia it kind of sums it up it's really dark and you're trying to get through the, the you know the, the the depth of midnight but there is the moon to 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 guide you out you know it's 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 there to to show you that there is positivity and and um bad times don't last forever the moon sounds like a bond theme i think a little bit it does yeah and everybody keeps saying that to us but i you know we didn't write the music uh arena zilic wrote that riff and when i first heard her play it it was at a little club in uh, zagreb in croatia and i absolutely loved it i thought it was really really brilliant and and it had been going around in my head for a long time so when it came to making the album i said to sky you know i'd i'd really love to do a cover of this song but it's only got one verse 
And so she wrote a second verse to it. And, um, and it's the opening of that verse where we got the line, the blackest blue. Right. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's, it's been great. And um, if you need any follow-up questions or anything, just give us a shout. And that's our show. Thanks, as always, to our guests whose opinions are their own. Thanks also this week to Natalie Quesnel. Ta-ra!